Good morning. I invite you to open a Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you're using one of the Bibles that's been provided for you in the pew, you'll find it on page 987. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 4. We're nearing the end of a series in 1 Thessalonians, which as we understand it is one of the Apostle Paul's first letters. And so we've titled it Beginning with the End. He, he began somewhere, his ministry of writing to congregations, which would eventually form most of our New Testament, began somewhere. And when we come to 1 Thessalonians, we learn more about where it began. And we see that one of the themes that dominates this letter is the subject of Christ's return. What will happen when it's all said and done? Is there an end point to history or are we, as some would tell us, simply repeating cycles? And so there will be an end to certain periods of history, i.e. one nation will come to power and have its dynasty and then it will fall and another one will rise, but the cycle will continue. To it, there will be no end. Or do we believe that all of human history is pointing to and moving forward to a day in which all of us will stand in judgment, when all things will be completed? And for us as Christians, we believe that it will come to an end where we will all stand before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And As we look through this letter, we see all of the implications that take place in the here and now based upon our understanding and belief of what will be in the end. And we said that this letter of Paul is one of his most relaxed letters. There's not a significant amount of conflict going on among these believers, especially if we compare, for example, 1 Thessalonians with 1 Corinthians. There's conflict all over the place in Corinthians, and so Paul has to address many different issues as he writes to those believers. It's not as strong here, but clearly, though the believers in Thessalonica are being commended again and again by Paul, they're not a perfect church. And so Paul does have some things that he needs to address to them and encourage them about. And chapter 4 is now where we get to Paul's very specific addressing of issues that are going on. We've seen him commend them again and again and express his love for them and now come still in a spirit of love and all of his affection for them, warnings to them. Areas maybe where they're being a little bit loose or they haven't quite grasped how the gospel should inform these areas of their life. And so as we read it, hopefully we read it with open minds and hearts to say, if we too are loose in any of these areas, that we'll hear these words, not just as words to a congregation 2,000 years ago, but as words relevant to us here today. And so if you will follow along, we'll read verses 1 through 12. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus That as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain 
from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. But we urge you to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I submit to you that much of what we learn about the Christian life and all of its implications, we learn through the modeling of other people's behavior. That many of us, when we were presented the gospel, were presented it to us by people through whom we also had a relationship, whether they were our parents or grandparents or friends, who when they shared the message of the gospel to us, we recognized what else went along with it. So for example, when somebody shared to us the importance of identifying and confessing our sins and embracing Christ as our Savior... And that that was something that needed to be experienced in a moment in time that we of our own free volition would choose to embrace and accept what God had done for us. If we had the opportunity to see that choice modeled around us, we knew what also went along with it in terms of how to conduct yourself in your speech, in the way you lived your life, and the way you treated other people. But whenever the gospel makes its first inroads into a society or a culture that's never heard it before, one of the questions that's actually a lingering question that's not always able to be dealt with from the beginning is how does this message of God's love and redemption through Jesus affect everything else about the way I should live and conduct myself? And so Paul As a missionary to this region, when he came, there weren't churches set up all over the place. He was bringing the gospel to these people. And he tried, as we saw in chapter 2, to model for them through his behavior what hard work and financial independence looked like. He sought to set an example for them. But his period among them was brief. The popularity of his message in the city created a situation where others became hostile towards him and he was expelled in the middle of the night from the city. And so his chance to spend years with these believers was not there. He only had what we can gather together as a few months with them 
to show them, not simply tell them, what the gospel was. And so as these people now embrace the gospel, the question was, how does this affect everything else? And like I said, this is true of any missionary endeavor that tries to reach out to a new group of people. And so there are people today who still give of their time, effort, and energy to reach tribes that are in the middle of the Amazon. And as they try to reach them and as they share the gospel to them, these people who embrace this message still wonder, well, how do I now live out the truth of this when in my culture I have four wives? I've embraced this gospel message, this truth that God loves me. But when I embrace that, I'm already married to four people. Oh, um, let's talk about that. Let's, let's pray about that. Let's consider the scriptures together about that. How do I continue, when I've embraced this gospel message, to conduct business when there are so many people around me who, when they conduct business, there's a lot of voodoo that's going on in their mind as we do this exchange, And if I continue to sell them this product, they don't just see this as an exchange of goods and services, but they think they're buying from me a God. They're going to take this home, put this up on their shelf, and start praying to it. So how how do I, embracing the message of the gospel, do I continue to just sell that and say, you know, that's up to them and, and they just, you know, they're accountable for their own behavior. But what does it mean for me? How does this truth affect everything else about my conduct as a Christian? And so as a region that did not have the gospel for a long period of time, but only a brief period, You have increasingly people who are embracing this message but unsure of all of its implications. And so we we get to a little bit more of a picture of why Paul in now chapter 4 was saying in chapters 2 and 3 how badly he wanted to get back to them face to face to share with them and to continue to exhort them in the faith. Paul knew that he did not have the chance to to flesh it all out for them. He focused on the main things and got the primary truths to them, but some of these other aspects he was not able to get into. So he sent Timothy, and Timothy came back, and while Timothy's report was encouraging, so encouraging that last week Paul described it and said it gave life to us, that we can now live because of the good news that Timothy has shared There was also something that came in the message from Timothy to Paul that said they're still thinking through how the gospel affects sexuality. They're surrounded by a culture that has its own answer and its own perspective and they're still thinking through how the gospel informs the area of their own bodies and how to control and conduct their own bodies. And so he begins, he says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk, you received this from us, you saw this from us, and just as you're doing, to do it more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is 
the will of God, your and my sanctification, which you could also put the word holiness in there. And he says that positively and then negatively that we abstain from sexual immorality. The idea of sanctification or growing in our faith, if we had to put a person to it, Paul is saying the will of God for you, for me, for every Christian is that we become more and more like Jesus. So this theological term, sanctification, if we put a person behind it, we say it is the will of God for you and for me to not only accept Jesus, to not only receive the gift that he has offered to us, but in receiving it to then seek to become more and more like him. And in so doing, we will abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Our beliefs about God and creation and redemption, our understanding of his return should affect the way in which we now conduct ourselves and understand even our own bodies. But if we view ourselves as being here without any reference to God, without any reference to some higher form of morality, all that drives the decisions that we make can become simply whatever we feel. But our bodies are the most tangible part of us. When you look into a mirror... You can't see your soul. You see your body. When you're sitting here, you're feeling either the uncomfortableness of a wood pew behind you or needing to adjust your leg because it's falling asleep. You're not feeling as much and as tangibly the non-physical, whether it's guilt or whether it's joy or whether it's patience. And do you feel patience like you feel your leg falling asleep? But our bodies are the most tangible aspects of who we are and they send signals to us all the time that we're hungry, we're thirsty. And if we do not have a worldview that views our bodies as created by God and that he in designing our bodies also can give us the best wisdom and the best advice of how to control and conduct our bodies, then we'll simply be left to do whatever our bodies tell us to do. And so Paul is clarifying for these believers that, hey, as you've embraced the message of the gospel, as you've received the gift of Jesus Christ, so now you need to become like Jesus which means you will resist living your life through the passion of simply whatever you lust after. Because here's the thing about lust. Lust always wants what it cannot have. Lust always wants what it cannot have. What that means is that if you're a single person and you feel that you're struggling in a way, thinking through the implications of the gospel as it relates to sexuality, and say, if I just get married, I won't struggle with lust. 
The answer is no, that's not true. Because lust always wants what it cannot have. And the moment it has something, it wants something else. And so the only way to deal with lust is to put it to death. The only way to deal with it is to destroy it. But it always wants what it cannot have. And lust comes in other forms, not just in our relationships with others, but we can lust for power, we can lust for fame, we can lust for control. But again, if, if that comes from impurity within us, the moment we have it, we're not satisfied with it. And we want something more, something else. And again, our option is not to deal with it by acquiring the thing we lust for. But by putting to death is the language of scripture, mortifying those impulses and desires. And so he says, abstain from this. You might have grown up in an environment where people were serving gods all over the place and part of their service to God was actually being very, very loose with their bodies. But as you now come to Jesus, that's a part of what you're saying no to. That this Jesus who's redeemed you is the same Jesus who created you and designed you and who knows the best about you and can prescribe for you where pure joy and fulfillment can come from. And it's not through one of two categories. This is often, if we had to submit how the world can often approach this subject devoid of God and it's viewing sexuality through two things, exploitation or experimentation. And both of these things are things that we have to say no to if we're going to take seriously the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we say no to exploitation of other people. Paul's exhortation, you have to learn how to control your own body. Do not wrong or transgress any of your other brothers and sisters in this matter. In our understanding of being created in God's image and accountable to him, believing that he loved us and that he created us with the freedom to love him back. That we have to choose and embrace him in loving him back. That he has designed our relationships to be the same way. That genuine love presupposes freedom of mutual expression. And so it is illegitimate and inappropriate to ever exploit sexually another person. Out of bounds for anyone who takes seriously the gospel and the truth of God's word. And Paul has to share this message to these believers that we cannot think that the impulses or the urges or whatever is happening in our bodies is something that we have the freedom to simply act upon devoid of the relationships with other people. Nor does Paul say that experimentation is a way to freedom. No, it's in the committed context of a relationship with another human being where morality is connected 
to sexuality. It's about promises made and promises kept. It goes together. And the world tries to sell us a lie and say that, well, certain things are just physical or they're just fun. And it's not true. It's not true. We can never separate who we are physically from who we are emotionally and spiritually. All of those go together. And so we have to take seriously all of those implications. And now, we've enjoyed here in the United States for a period of time an environment where even if the Christian gospel was not received individually by people, a sort of Christian ethic as it related to sexuality was generally accepted and permitted. As that continues to deteriorate and is true less and less in our day, we're going back increasingly to a day where the kinds of questions that were raised for Paul and the apostles as they reached new people groups, we are going to have to address. Not just when we go to a foreign country and share the message, but as we share the message to our friends and neighbors. How do we share the gospel and think through the implications of what now is expected of someone who, before they ever became a Christian, have, because of the availability of our technology and all of that, been viewing pornography for 15 years before they became a Christian? How do we deal with the fact that in our day and age, the exploitation of people is estimated to be somewhere around a 30-some billion dollar industry? Over two million kids today caught in some form of forced trafficking. Today. And if one of those kids, when they're 25 years old, hears the gospel and embraces the message that they are created, that they are redeemed, and now the very serious question, what does that mean now? How does that affect all that's been experienced up to this point? But if we as a group of people right now in this room are simply average, if we can say we're not an exceptional group of people, we're just maybe average for what surrounds us in this society, then what is average today is that one in six women in the United States have been abused in some fashion. And I'm counting more than six people in this room. If we're just average... which means there's an abuser as well. And as we think through those things in light of the end, it's one of those subjects that can easily, for many, draw them to the conclusion that if there was a God, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. And the very realities of what they're experiencing causes them to doubt in God. And we, as believers, have to stand up and give an account in light of all that we are seeing that is true. How can we, why do we believe in God? 
And the reality is whether you believe in him or not, all of those statistics remain true. If you walk away and say, in light of those things, I don't believe, you walk away and the reality that you have to deal with and cope with is the same. Nothing goes away in terms of the mess, the ugliness, the despair that is in this world. But what Paul could say, distanced from these people, is, hey, what I do believe is that the Lord will avenge those sins. That Jesus, who is returning, will avenge the injustices that take place in this world. So yes, I believe that we're in a period of time where abuse and sin is permitted, but I do not believe that those abuses, those injustices will have the final say, that they will be the ultimate determiners of someone's eternal fate. But I believe that Jesus, he will come and avenge these things. And sometimes that's the only thing that we're left with when we hear the story of another person or even our own experiences. And how we believe the end will play out affects our ability to deal with and to live out the here and the now. Do we believe that we serve a just and right God? And so in some way, two million children and all who profit off of and exploit will all stand before him. But for Paul, that's the serious implication of what it is. To those who are hurt and victimized and abused, he wants to present himself as he has in the chapters before and say, I've loved you like a father, like another mother nursing her children, uh, just expressing all of his affection and the care and the concern of the gospel. But for any who are thinking that they can somehow play the role of being a Christian, sitting in a church pew, but not paying attention to these very principles, he wants to assure them of the judgment that is coming. So that they take seriously their own need of the gospel. And that they realize what all of us need to realize, that lust is never satisfied in getting what it wants. By design, it is never satisfied. And so our lives are not to be characterized by trying to get what we lust for. But rather, it says God, in verse 7, has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so he is encouraging them as they think through the implications of all that they're dealing with to focus on what makes them more and more like Jesus. And then he says in verse 9, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught to love one another, but we urge you to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, 
to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. It's an interesting aspiration, isn't it, that Paul encourages the believers to. If you gather together a group of first and second graders and you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you aspire to? I aspire to live quietly. You do? That doesn't sound like an aspiration. (laughs) That sounds like settling for something. It sounds like not doing something. But he tells them, aspire to live quietly. To mind your own affairs. To work with your own hands. And so now as they consider all the implications of the gospel as it relates to their finances, their economics, their business exchanges, Paul is encouraging them to live quietly, to mind their own affairs. These believers are being persecuted and Paul is trying to encourage them in their persecution, but he's also being smart and practical and saying, don't do whatever you can to get persecuted. Okay, I'm going to encourage you while you're getting persecuted to persevere. But don't make it your, your goal to be persecuted for the faith. That's not your goal. Your goal is to live out your faith. Your goal is to be able to obey and do the things that you feel that you're called to do. Sometimes that will lead to persecution. But never pursue the persecution pursue faithfulness to God. And so if you are able to live out your faith and to organize and manage your own home in such a way that you do not create conflict, that's okay. Because it should not be our goal to be confrontational with the world around us even though they don't share our worldview. We might try to persuade them out of theirs. We might try to call them to a different way of life. But our goal should not be primarily to be antagonistic with them. If we can live among them quietly and minding our own affairs, that is what we should seek to do. To try to get them to embrace the message that we embrace, not again by coercion or exploitation, but through persuasion and modeling. That if we can live out the Christian life and all of its implications well, we won't have to ask people if they want this kind of a life. They'll ask and we'll have to try to explain. But they'll be able to see there's, there's love there, there's unity there, there's joy. I don't experience that. How do you experience the kind of joy and the love that you have? And then as it comes to their own resources, he says, work with your own hands so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Seek as much as is possible within you to be financially independent. And so as Christians, when we think through how to apply these very principles in the public sphere, we as Christians, yes, are to have compassion for the poor. And so we don't want to allow other people to tell us what our message is. We can think in terms of our own Christian worldview and say that God has called us to reach out to those who are in need because God reached out to us when we were in need. And that if God would have waited for us to take the initiative, for us to get everything in order, we would have been left right where we were. 
And so we as Christians are encouraged to take initiative, to seek to reach out to people. But in the reaching out to them, what is our objective? Here, he says his goal for these believers is that they become independent, able to function on their own, dependent on no one. So while we reject the message that says we don't have to care about anybody, we're all individuals, only accountable for ourselves, we don't need to be concerned about anybody else, we also reject the idea that we're supposed to keep people in a situation where they're always in need of help. Our goal in helping, assisting, giving, supporting is to be as much as is possible to bring people to a place where they themselves can become givers, contributors, helpers to other people. And they can only become that if when they themselves can become independent financially, not dependent on others, but able to give to the need of others when that time comes. Now, did you notice that in both of these categories, as it related to their bodies, as it related to their affairs and their finances, Paul says, you guys have been doing this. What I'm telling you and encouraging you to do is to do it more and more. You have been doing it. You've begun. You've gotten on the road. What I'm encouraging you to do is to do it more and more. He's not looking at them and saying, hey, I've gotten this good report from Timothy. It sounds like you guys are doing a pretty good job, so relax. Put it in cruise control. It'll just take care of itself from here. He doesn't do that. He encourages them. He says, I urge you, in verse 10, urge you to do this more and more. And one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves is who is allowed to look into our lives, commend us for what we're doing, and still urge us and push us to more? You see, we have a hard time even admonishing one another when we're doing something wrong and saying, hey, you're going off of the path. What? Come back on the path. We have a difficulty with that. But who will we listen to in our own lives when we're actually on the path to come alongside of us and say, push it. You're doing great. But keep going. Go farther. Go harder than you've gone before. And whoever that person is, that person is functionally what Paul is to these believers. That's what a a pastor, a leader, a a teacher is is to be able to do. Paul is able to do this to them. I'm commending you for what you're doing and I'm pushing you. In my experience, this has most often happened. You you accept this role from somebody else. For me, it's always been in the realm of athletics. Coaches can do this very well. I can remember playing soccer in high school and a practice was ending And our coach set two cones at a certain distance apart, and he gathered the whole team and lined them up and said, here's what I want to do. Every one of you is going to run now as a team to that second cone. I got my clock, and I want you to give me everything you've got. Run as 
fast as you possibly can. I want to know how fast our whole team can make it from point A to point B. Okay, I mean, we're at the end of a practice, so we're tired, but okay, we're going to be timed here. And so we sprint. He hits the clock. Ten seconds. Now I want you to do that ten more times. Ten. You, we just, you said give every, that was everything. Yeah, ten more times. And any time you get less than that, you got to do another one. It's got to be ten times. So if you can do it ten in a row, you do ten. If it takes you to fifteen, we get to fifteen. Okay, break up. And so who was the slowest person on the team? Because that's the person who's going to affect everybody, right? You got to make sure the slowest person makes his time or you, who maybe can get it in 9.5 or 9, has to do it again. So break up and get next to each other and encourage them and say, hey, everything you got right now, we're running. You, your time affects everybody. You don't get together and, you know, just say all a bunch of nice things to each other. You start to get angry. You're encouraging one another. Come on, let's do this. So we do it, we do it. We get to the fifth or sixth time. And now a carrot's thrown out to us. And he says, if you can do it one more time, he knows we're, we're waning. He's trying to be gentle. If you can do it one more time, you don't have to do the last three. I'm going to go from 10 to 7. If you can get this done, you don't have to do the last one. Okay, now we're really getting into each other's faces. If we can do it this one time, we don't have to do it three more times. And so we all motivate each other. We get ready. We run. He hits his watch. He looks down and it says nine seconds. We all start cheering. We all did it in nine. And he says, you know what? Now you have to do two more in that time. What? So I told you to give me everything you had, the best time that you could do. And on the seventh one, you can, what that means is the first one wasn't your best. What I am trying to do is to hold you accountable. You believe your best is something. And I want to show you it's something else. Now, he was allowed to do that. He was permitted to see us trying, working, striving, and say, try more. Who is permitted for you, for me, to do that in our spiritual journey? To say, you're doing great. I'm seeing you running. I can see the sweat. Try harder. Work more, run faster. What you believe is your best, I promise you, is not. You haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen when it comes together with the Holy Spirit's conviction and the word in your mind and a situation in front of you where you can be released for God. None of us have seen it yet in perfection. And so do we encourage one another and hold one another accountable to more and more? But that's how Paul begins and ends this section. Verse 2. 
Look, you know how you ought to walk and to please God. Do this more and more. And then in verse 10, look, everybody's talking about how much you love one another. We don't even need to say anything about how good of a job you do loving one another. But we urge you to do this more and more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example that we have of one of your followers leading, shepherding, guiding a group of believers, helping them to think through how your message, your truth applies to all areas of their life. And Father, as we look now in our own day and age, in 2010, in these United States of America, wondering what are the implications of the gospel? What does it mean to be like you in an industrialized and technologically advanced age? How can we serve you with all that is accessible and available to us? How can we avoid and abstain from all the temptation that is around us? And how can we, as a family, encourage one another to more and more? Father, as we've prayed already, I'd I'd like to pray again for, for Tiny and all the Rubik family. Because as I think of Brother Bill as well, I remember him as one who always encouraged to more and more. Commended the work and encouraged further work. I thank you for that legacy. And I pray that you would help us, all of us here, as we have the freedom to live out our own faith, to believe that the best is something we have not yet seen. Show it to us, not for our glory, but for yours. Amen.